listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And also a reading from Romans chapter 4. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, friends. Uh, you might already know this about me, but I love technology. I'm really impressed by it. Like, I'm, I'm a bit of a science buff. I'm not a scientist, so I don't actually understand how it all works, but I'm always amazed by what they can do. Modern medicine, I think, is, is a marvel. Like, um, one, of, one of our girls was born with a heart condition, and her, her mitral valve inside her heart was not opening correctly. And so when she was seven weeks old, we take her to the University of Florida, and they go through her thigh and up into, inside her little heart, and they open up that valve. Like, who thought of that? And who was the first person that said, hey, I think we could do this? And how did they even discover that that was the problem? I just marvel. I marvel at what uh, technology can do. We went on a little trip yesterday out of town, and Angela had grabbed my phone, and she kind of typed in the, the address to where we're headed. And then anytime I needed to make a turn, my watch, you know, beeped a couple of times, and I glanced at it, and it told me in so many feet or in so many miles I was going to have to turn this way or that way. Once again, my watch and my phone are smarter than I am. <laughs> they, apparently they know how to get to where I'm going when I don't know how to get to where I'm going. Of all the modern advances in science and medicine and technology, one that I'm really amazed at was the mapping of the human genome. So Francis Collins kind of led that. And we've seen him a lot in the news the past year. He's the executive director of the National Institute of Health. So if, if you've watched the news at all, I'm sure you've seen him. And another thing that I really appreciate about Francis Collins personally is he's very kind of outspoken about his faith. He's a man of deep faith. And he heads up a nonprofit called the BioLogos Foundation, which is to kind of help Christians appreciate science and not see science as kind of a negative or something they have to resist or fight against, but as kind of opening up and kind of believing that, you know, all truth is God's truth, right? So Collins, was, was a, he's a geneticist, and he kind of led the group that mapped the human genome, which is how we now know how DNA works. And one of the Maybe not the most important part of, of DNA, but one of the fascinating parts about DNA is that we can now have our DNA tested and find out who else we're related to. So a few years ago, uh, my kids bought for me for Christmas this 23andMe, which is one of those different things, you know, it's kind of gross. You kind of spit in a, in a little tube, right, and you stick it in the mail. And then a few weeks later, you get an email and you find out you have this cousin and that cousin and a a second cousin and a third cousin and a fourth cousin, right? And, and he goes on and on and on. So A.J. Jacobs, an author that I really like, wrote a book a few years ago called It's All Relative, which is the, you know, the theme for the Appalachian Mountains, you know? Sorry. <laughs> it's, it, it's all relative. I, I, I'm a proud Appalachian American. But anyway, the title of the book, It's All Relative, Adventures Up and Down the Family Tree. And this is how it started for Jacob. This is how he got into it. He'd gotten an email from this man he didn't know, some Israeli living, living in Israel. And the guy said, hey, I really appreciate some of the books that you write. And I just wanted you to know that I've been researching my genealogy. And we've gone back lots and lots and lots and lots of generations. And so now I've, I have identified 80,000 living relatives of mine. And you're one of them. 
And so his first thought was, wow, I, know, I now know that there's 80,000 people on the planet that I'm related to, and I can kind of map that out. And his second thought was, oh, no, I have 80,000 relatives, right? Because I don't know how you might feel about it, but sometimes too many relatives and too many people kind of getting together at the house, and you're like, and not just at COVID times. I'm just like regular times. I don't, I don't need that many people in my life, I don't think. But in any case, this, this genealogy is, is really fascinating. And, and there's a couple of ways in which it's working. It's, it's, it's twofold. One of them is just the science and the DNA and the way in which they've tracked things. And this is particularly good for people who have kind of lost touch with their biological family and they're trying to find those traces and, and the way it connects. But it's also uh, working in a more social science kind of way, like on the internet, using collaboration, kind of an open source group sourcing kind of thing, where like if I type in my name, Robbie Waddell, and I, I've, made, I've made a family tree, it can check to see if Robbie Waddell is appearing on some other family tree, and then see whether or not that's the same Robbie or a different one. And if it is the same one, then it kind of, it kind of grafts it in. And then it just expands and expands and expands. And I think, I think that's really fascinating. And there are a few things, and Jacob brings this up, there's a few things that we can learn from that, kind of good things. So the first is that this does have scientific value. It allows us, to, knowing our DNA, allows us to kind of track diseases and migration and the same people who can kind of map all that out can figure out how to kind of then prevent or cure diseases. I mean, a year ago, what is it, February, maybe we had heard of such a thing as the coronavirus, but it didn't seem like a clear and present danger. But within a couple of weeks from now, a year ago, we were already starting to move to just kind of remote services. So, but now, some of you have already been vaccinated. So not only did we discover that there was such a thing as this virus and the disease that it caused, but they figured out how it was made and how you might create a vaccine that could prevent it. That's, that's, just, that's just fascinating. The other piece, besides just the scientific value, is kind of a historical value, to see that how we are connected to certain folks. So I don't even know if this, this one's accurate. This might actually be apocryphal. But my mother used to tell me that we were related to Captain James Smith, who was part of the Jamestown colony. But then I'd also remember being told by a family member that we were part of the uh, Cherokee tribe. And then when I actually checked into our DNA, there was no actually support for that one. And then if, just in case, another part of Appalachian culture, just in case you don't know, everybody in the Appalachia thinks they're Cherokee. Right, Every, everybody makes claim to that. Like if your family came over on the Mayflower, my family was here to greet you when you got here, right? <laughs> so we all kind of make these claims for, for this kind of early kind of permanency. Jacob tells a funny story. Apparently one of his distant cousins was none other than Albert Einstein. And so he was telling his child about that and then the child got interested in Einstein and you know, what did he do and what did he know and how did he contribute to science? And so we have knowing our history can connect us to folks we can be quite proud of in our family trees, and that can be pretty exciting. 
He also mentioned, though, that you can kind of run into some pretty savory folks. And one of them in his family tree was Jeffrey Dobner, the, the serial killer, although he said that was on his wife's side. <laughs> <laughs> but I think ethically for us, this becomes really important. It's the interconnectedness that this has. So you don't have to be a biblicist and, and kind of follow this very, very literal reading of the Bible. You can be a geneticist and believe that some 7,000 generations ago, there was a Y chromosomal Adam and a mitochondrial Eve. Like that's what the geneticists are saying, that, that we, are, we are part of a human race, that we are part of a human family, that we are all connected to each other. So that there's this other piece, it's called Genie, and they have identified now, this is not speculating, this isn't the math, they've identified 75 million people on the planet that they know are related to one another. 75 million that they know that they can trace through family trees and know that they're related to one another. And the, the theoretical work behind it, right, so we have theories and then we later prove them, right, but the theoretical work behind that would suggest that if we can do the work, like if we can trace that out scientifically and kind of sociologically, we would discover that every person on the planet actually has some kind of connection, family connection to each other. And I just think that is amazing. It's really quite wonderful. Like, I'm pretty gregarious anyway. I, I, I just like people. I like to be around them. And I, I've always felt like, you know, in the church, we always called each other brother and sister. Or in the mountains, we'd often call each other cousin. And sometimes it was because they were our cousins, right? Big families. But other times, we'd just call each other cousin. Like, when I first moved to Lakeland, I, I was sitting at the Beacon Starbucks, and I, had, I was being introduced. Matt Hewitt was actually introducing me to him a good friend of Matt's, and we found out that we live fairly close to each other kind of growing up. So we don't know our family histories, but since then, and that's some 17 years ago now, we have called each other cuz, which is just, you know, mountain for cousin. So there's, there's, a, there's another kind of outworking of this interconnectedness, and that is I believe this should create a kinder world. Like, if we know that somebody else's family, we'll give them a little bit of a break. We won't judge them quite as harshly. Like, it's easy if somebody is different than us, if they're different from us politically, if they're different from us, you know, geographically or, or nationally or, or religiously, you know, it's easy to kind of just other them. But if they're family we give them a little bit more of a break. So we titled this, this sermon today, this service, It's All Relative. I thought about titling it Bad News for Bigots, <laughs> but I thought that might be a little too harsh. <laughs> but I do think that the science that we're talking about today, the fact that, that we are kind of biologically family is bad news for bigots because you can't be against someone else because you are them. Like there's a lot of them in you and there's a lot of you in them. 
And so to be against them would be to be against yourself in a lot of ways. And then there is this kind of democratizing effect. That is, when we think about genealogies and the way they've been used, they've often been used kind of exclusively. Like, I'm a descendant of royalty, and so therefore I'm in, and you're not, so therefore you're out, right? And so histories and genealogies have been used for exclusion. Except this history and this genealogy is so broad and so inclusive that it, it, it doesn't create a hierarchy or an elitism. It democratizes it. It creates, it's that we're all in this together. And I love that. And I think that's what these texts that we heard about today are in large part about. There's a promise, right, to Abraham and that his descendants would become a nation. And then later, in, when Paul is writing to the Romans, he's recounting that story. And I want to be careful here because I think this is cutting in a couple of different directions. And, and I, I, want us to be able, I want us to be able to hear it. So on the one hand, this, there seems to be this kind of strong argument for, for relation by blood, right? This strong argument for being part of a group that's been chosen, right? It was Abraham and then his descendants, but not all of his descendants, right? It wasn't Esau, it was Isaac. And then it wasn't Jake, it wasn't, excuse me, it wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. And it wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. And it was kind of following down that line. And so by the time we get to Paul and before that, Jesus, we get this sense that somehow the Jewish people and the Pharisees had become this super exclusive group. But I think the words of Paul are often misunderstood, largely because we're hearing them through the lens of a, of a 16th century European debate between Martin Luther and the Catholics. So when Paul says we are justified by faith, apart from the works of the law, we hear the conflict between Luther and the Catholics, which was an argument between being justified by faith, as Luther was arguing, and a critique that he had of the Catholic Church that felt like they were somehow earning their salvation, that they were justified by works. But that, that argument, which is really a, a conversation for a different day, is not applicable to Paul and the law or Jesus and the Pharisees. Because there's no self-respecting Pharisee. There's no, there's no Jew of Paul's day who thought that somehow you became Jewish by just obeying the law. They thought you were Jewish because you were born that way. You were Jewish because mom and dad were Jewish. And they were Jewish because grandma and grandpa were Jewish, right? And so you were elect. You were part of God's people, not because you'd been justified by Torah obedience, but you had been justified by birth. So you were God's people because you were born that way. And the one true God had chosen Abraham and then this particular lineage of Abraham, and that made you the people of God. Torah obedience would bring blessings, and Torah disobedience would bring punishment, but not ultimate inclusion or exclusion from God's people. You were God's people. Father Abraham, right? You couldn't do anything but be part of God's people. 
And that is a very kind of blood and soil, oddly enough, understanding of religion, of spirituality. But Paul is saying, well, wait a minute. If, if it's just a matter of birth, then what do we do with Abraham? Because Abraham wasn't born a Hebrew. Abraham's the first of the Hebrews. So how was Abraham justified? He wasn't justified by doing the works of the law. The law hadn't been given yet. It'd be given later to Moses. And he wasn't justified by birth. He was justified by faith. So if Abraham's justified by faith, then that must be the same way, Paul will say, that we all become justified. And so if we're all justified by faith, it's not a matter of birth. And if it's not a matter of birth, then that also includes the Gentiles. So in the previous chapter, he had argued that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in this chapter, he's arguing that we're justified by faith, not by birth. And in the next chapter, he'll argue that now Christ is the one and only way to God. And that it's both Jesus's faithfulness and then likewise our faith in Jesus that includes us in this group. So that this group is a matter of faith, not a matter of birth. And you might say, well, Robbie, what about what about Romans like 9, 10, and 11? Like we, we read from Romans uh, 4 today, but what about later in the book where, where um, Paul will say, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated? I would say keep reading because that's not where that story ends. Kind of trying to take Chris's advice from last week. We've read the story, but we didn't keep reading as long as we should have. If we keep reading, in the next chapter, we realize that those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, which would include Esau, by the way, and then in the next chapter, when the story finally ends, we get this beautiful picture of a tree, like a family tree, like the family trees that we're talking about. And the, the story starts that in this family tree is this one big major branch called Israel. But Israel gets cut off. And this other branch that wasn't originally a part gets grafted in. We'll call them the Gentiles. And now we have a tree with one major branch, but it wasn't natural. It's been grafted. But it's now a part, right? And it's the Gentiles. So what, what will God do with Israel? Leave it cut off, Paul says? No, no way, no how. That branch is picked back up by God and also grafted in. So we end up with this huge family tree that all the branches now have been grafted in, and it includes the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul is ending this argument kind of where he started it at the beginning of Romans, where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. That doesn't mean first to the Jew and then to the Greek. It's not like if you're not Jewish, you're second class, right? You weren't born into it, but maybe you were fostered into it, right? You're not legit. No, it doesn't mean that at all in any way, shape, or form. It means it, chronologically, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, and in the end, we have it all so that it's all relative, except now our relations are based on faith, not based on our blood. 
However, I think to stop there is to miss a point. It makes this faith seem just to exist in kind of the, the ethereal, the, the spiritual, just out there somewhere, as though it doesn't actually involve our bodies, as though it doesn't involve this place that we find ourselves in. Because in, as in all the practices of the church, from the table to baptism to marriage to confession to the praying for the sick, they all involve these things that are both spiritual and physical, right? We, that we don't just worship God in our head. We worship God in our hearts and with our bodies. God didn't just save our souls. He saved us. And, that, and he's saving the world. And so that work, that interconnectedness, means that this idea of family is a family of faith. That's how it happens. But it's a family that affects the body. I want you to think of it this way. Like, genealogies are a big deal in Judaism. And the, the, Jew, the Jewish scriptures, now the Christian scriptures, are filled with genealogies. Right? If you're one of those people who likes to read through the Bible in a year, if that's one of your practices, spiritual practices, you hit that time when you're reading through Chronicles, and if you're reading for 15 or 20 minutes, there are some days that all you read is genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And at the end of that, you might think, uh, thank you, Lord. But you have no idea what that might do for you in that day, right? How, how could it help you that so-and-so begat so-and-so, right? And then when we, get to, when we get to the New Testament, the same thing happens, right? Matthew opens with a genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And he starts to work his way down. One interesting thing about, about Matthew's account of that genealogy, a couple of interesting things maybe. One, four women get mentioned, which is a bit atypical for ancient Jewish genealogies. Normally the women got left out. But in, in Matthew's telling of Jesus' story, there are four women. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, uh, there's Ruth, and then there's uh, Bathsheba, although she's referred to as the wife of Uriah. At least two of those women, uh, Rahab and Ruth, aren't Hebrews. If, if this is an argument about the quote-unquote purity of Jesus' bloodline, it's a really bad version of that story. Like, if you're trying to say Jesus is fully Jewish, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, and so therefore he can be the king, you ought not have told us about Rahab, and you ought not have told us about Ruth. Because Rahab's a Canaanite, and Ruth is a Moabite, and neither one of those were Hebrew families. So their family is, is like, well, our families, like all the families, like the family of the human race. It is interconnected. It has all of these other people. Now, granted, they are faithful women. Rahab is faithful and Ruth is faithful. But, this, but the story is told in such a way that they get included. Interesting about Luke's account of that story, of the genealogy, is that he doesn't start with Abraham and work his way down to Jesus. He starts with Jesus and starts to work his way back. Except he doesn't stop at Abraham. He keeps going back to Adam. And, and that's, that's the story that I think I'm trying to emphasize today. 
like this passage that Bev read to us, both from Genesis and then from Romans. But that Romans 4 passage opens up into Romans 5, where Jesus is called the last Adam. Right? So we had this first Adam, through all of us come, and now Jesus is this new Adam through which we all come. And so if there are people in the shadows, they are your cousins. If you, if you yourself find yourself sometimes being in the shadows, not seen, not known, then just know this, that everybody else that's in the shadows with you is family, and all of those who are standing in the spotlight, well, they're family too. Like, we are all part of the same family. We come to the table as a statement of faith, believing that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, right, we proclaim the mystery of the faith, Jesus was crucified, Jesus died, and Jesus will come again, or... I got that wrong. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus will come again. Right? The mystery of the faith. But what, what I want you to know is when we hold up the cup, and he says, this cup is the blood, my blood, of the new covenant. You realize Jesus' blood was human blood? Jesus is fully human. This, this is the basic Christian idea. Right? We can't get away from this. Jesus was fully human. He had a mama. And his mama had a mama. And if we, were, if we had the capability to map every human who had ever lived, we would realize that Mary and her parents and their siblings and their kids eventually would include all of us. So that on a physical level, like on a biological level, Jesus is our distant cousin. Like, if every single human person to have ever lived is somehow related, then that would include Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Now, he is a unique person. And there's lots, of course, that the, the church has said about this, about being born of a virgin. But still, that's his mom. And the church has said he's fully human. So that you are part, <laughs> let's see if I can get this right, because this, this, is, this is where I think it gets a little tricky. You become a part of the Christian family by faith. But that faith then works a transformation actually in us. So originally it might have been, it might have started as a smaller covenant with a big future promise, right? It starts small, but the future, all these nations. So it might start with this particular person in this particular place. So there was Abraham, and he had blood, right? And he was in a particular place, right, in ancient Canaan. But then it would grow to be all of his descendants in Israel. But there's one particular Jewish person in that lineage, right, who is Jesus. And now Jesus' blood opens this up to all people in all places. Which again, 
I think, both in terms of the interconnectedness and in terms of a kinder, gentler world. This is what we are called to. If God can make peace with us, then we should be able to make peace not just with God, but with ourselves, and not just with ourselves, but with each other. So that coming to this table is a practice of peace. It's a practice of reconciliation. It's a practice of, of gathering with our relatives who it turns out spiritually and who would not have guessed even physically includes everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They may have crucified him, but God raised him up. Not only is every person you've ever met or ever will meet made in the image of God, but every person you've ever met or you will meet, Jesus' death and resurrection is for. It is not for some select group. So God help us. God help us to, to be a people who can embrace, embrace this revelation that we can have eyes to see in the, in the twilight of Lent others and ourselves as being related, as being interconnected. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.